Podcast. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westcott demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or Whatever Movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. Wait. Uh, Wesley. That was better. Today we're, we're reviewing a current release available in theaters and on HBO Max through October 7th. Clint Eastwood in Cry Macho. Clint Eastwood, he did some of this music himself and I don't think... Mentally, he's compromised in any way, being at the advanced age of 91. But this definitely started with a song about being old. Oh, I assumed it was a a standard country western song. Yeah. I mean, aren't all country western songs kind of about having the blues or being old? Yeah, it's like Little Bill, like wanting to sit on his porch in the evenings and smoke his pipe. It's reflective. And by Little Bill, you mean Little Bill from Unforgiven. Yep, who is young and spry compared to Clint Eastwood in this movie. Uh, Yeah, I would say that Clint Eastwood is kind of anything but young and spry, but it's hard not to compare Cry Macho to Unforgiven. (sighs) How many years apart are they? 30 years. As I mentioned in our Unforgiven review, available now, Clint Eastwood was looking old then. (laughs) Well, he's looking really old now. And actually, (laughs) Cry Macho has been around since that time, and he focused on other stuff, but then he revisited it. But I actually think that Clint Eastwood would have been more age-appropriate had he done this movie at that time. Like 60, he could have been the faded rodeo star who's just tough enough to go south of the border and pull Doyle's son from the clutches of Jessica Rabbit and her cartel cadre and bring him back up north, like, realistically. Are you saying that he wasn't convincing as that character at 91? Oh, man. Even the trailer where you take so the painful. best bits and you make it a little bit harder hitting in the trailer and Clint Eastwood throws that punch and no part of it is convincing. I get it. This is Clint Eastwood's shtick to direct himself and have full autonomy over his films. But doesn't Clint Eastwood do himself a disservice casting himself as the lead in this film? I was trying to be sensitive to my own biases. Like, am I being ageist? Saying that Clint Eastwood is inappropriate for this film. Many old elderly people live very fruitful, productive, adventurous, love-infused lives. And is it something that we're not used to seeing in this experience, or is it really unrealistic? So Kelly and I were just listening last night to our review of Unforgiven. And it's something when Kelly, especially talking about a Western, would listen to one of our discussions and then be like, I should watch that movie again. But she also said during this movie, doesn't he have the money to hire like a real guy? He has to hire a walking skeleton. (laughs) So I think across, not just to us, not just ages, but he looks absurdly out of place in this movie. And I mean, look, I have had a legitimate lasting relationship with a person around Clint Eastwood's age, uh, Kelly's dad. And he is the most cowboy dude I know. And it was hard not to see elements of him in this movie. I think it comes down to Clint Eastwood honestly believing in his mind that he is still more able and agile than he is. 
well, I mean, why wouldn't I throw a punch? Like I can, you know, we'll make it look good. I can still get the girl, you know, Mar- the Martas are out there. That's fine. And I think that that could have been a really interesting film. You know, aging one time rodeo star, washed up horse breeder who thinks that he's still able to do the things that he once did, doesn't realize that he's perceived differently than how he perceives himself in his mind. Right. Kind of an interesting concept. It would have been a Western inversion of Unforgiven, where he says, I'm not like that no more, kid. You know, and he's obviously feeble and falling off a horse. Clint Eastwood was falling off his horse and bumping his head 30 years ago. And now he's breaking horses and throwing punches and stuff. All the stuff that Will Money said he couldn't do in Unforgiven, this guy, Siesta Mike, fully believes he can do in Cry Macho. Right. And how interesting it would be if if he thought he could do all these things. And then we see and then there's all the dramatic irony that he doesn't realize that that's not how he's perceived in the world anymore. Except I think what makes Cry Macho so unbelievable is how Marta perceives him as a very viable love interest and partner. I mean, maybe there's a certain kind of relationship that they could have, which would be primarily companionship based. Like what was Arnold Schwarzenegger's name in Redemption in in a, when he was the drapery man? <laughs> Carl. Yeah. A la Carl in Terminator Redemption. <laughs> What's it called? Dark Fate. Terminator in Terminator Dark Fate. Like maybe they could have that kind of a relationship. We got no time. For that introspective filmmaking you're talking about, get out of here with that. This one, they got, it's a road trip movie, and there's action, and punches, and drug lords, and guns, and high octane, this one. But the way that, (laughs) and none of it is convincing, because Marta's reaction to Mike, Macho, the kid Macho, what's his name? I don't. No. The kids' reaction to Mike. The thugs' reactions to Mike. Like, the thugs are irrationally afraid of Clint Eastwood in this film. That dude was the worst henchman I've ever... He he can't go back to Jessica Rabbit with his head up. He got punched by a 91-year-old. It stopped him in his tracks, and he's like, I'll get you next time or whatever. And then he got his car stolen. And then just when he really had him in his sights and he was finally going to win so he could go back and bring Jessica Rabbit to the kid, then he totally got cock-blocked by Macho. (laughs) And then he, like, (laughs) foiled again. It's a whole new meaning to cock-blocked. Yep. Macho was, like, the best stunt performer or the best... He was, like, the action star of this movie. Macho the rooster attacking the cartoonish henchman who's terrified and cowering in the sight of Mike is the microcosm for Cry Macho. I'm sorry. He was tough. He, you could tell because he had that lank, like lanky, greasy hair. <laughs> kind of oh, like man. the dude in Gunpowder Milkshake. Yep. The critics aren't rallying around Cry Macho, you know, and despite the 50% Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Rating, you know, it's it's still performing on HBO Max. I think people are curious. Maybe that's going to taper off. But is it just obvious and unnecessary that we go over the shortcomings of Cry Macho? <laughs> that's the most fun part. I mean, look, <laughs> I have unabashed love for Clint Eastwood, and he has a legacy in movies. But there's nothing that's going to carry me past the flaws of this movie. Or, you know, say, well, you got to give this movie a chance and and, and sit back and let it unfold its story to you. It's not going to work for me. 
and I can't really cut him that slack as much as he is Western royalty. Um, there was a discussion many, many years ago that Roger Ebert had about the movie The Brown Bunny, and he hated it, loathed it, and then it was recut, and he's like, actually, it's not that bad a movie. And it's just a formula that Clint Eastwood has, and if he, it's like potions in Harry Potter. If he mixes it just a little bit wrong, it goes like awry, and you get warts and stuff. And and he's got this, he's got a base, he's got a starter. And if he mixes it with the wrong ingredients, it comes out this bubbly kind of mess. And sometimes you have magic. You have sourdough magic. Because if anybody is sourdough in Hollywood, it's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I can't claim to understand what that means, but it makes sense. Clint Eastwood himself said, for filmmaking, if you have a good script, that's 50% of it right there good casting is like another 40% of it, which leaves about 10% for you to screw it up if you're going to screw it up. And I got to say, they missed the boat on, I mean, the screenplay was probably serviceable in theory, especially given that it's, you know, 30 years old. But I would say that it was pretty miscast up to and including its lead actor. And I do think Clint has presence, but boy, that's some 91 year old presence right there. And yeah. everyone else was nothing but false notes. And then I think the 10% he kind of messed it up too, because that is his opportunity to rein people in. And we talked before uh, in, during our Unforgiven discussion about how Clint just rolls with it. He's notorious for casual sets and one take performances. And boy, this kid whose name I don't even know, he needed more than one take. Everybody needed wow. more than one take in this movie. They needed direction, yeah. pure and simple. And you've said that Clint Eastwood's casting can be probably his biggest problem. And I can easily point to Gran Torino, where the real problem was the kids. It was populated with young people. And he just doesn't have the eye or the ear for young people. And I dare say neither does his casting director. But here we had the one miserable kid. Like if this kid... Raffo. If he had an action figure, couldn't you totally see the facial expression he has, his, his action figure has? You mean with, and with Macho tucked in his arm? Right. He's got the furrowed brows, like the Batman face. Yeah. He was kind of perpetually in that state. I mean, t and Clint Eastwood's expression was, I mean, except for when he was like making eyes at Marta and they were having their little moment at the, at the table. Uh, he was pretty expressionless, although, although I guess that's kind of appropriate for the Mike character. Yeah, for him. But even for she him. was weird. You know, she didn't quite overact as much. But there was also the moment when they stopped back into her little cafe and she fed them. Didn't you feel like something was wrong and something was off? She had discovered some information and was pissed at them, but wasn't saying anything. And then it was like gone. It was like a weird take that didn't match or they cut something out. When she's just like going through the motions of setting up the meal. Yeah. And she's he's like, trying to. Yeah. I got some scowling from her and I was like, what's happening? And then he said, well, we didn't just come back here for free food or whatever. And then she just let go and everything was fine. And she's like, I'm glad you are back. Siesta Mike. So maybe there was like a hint of she was feeling used and then she let it all go and was like, I'm really into you. Maybe, but we didn't get any idea of that much nuance being possible. It was so distracting to watch Clint Eastwood walk. He, was, he wasn't bad on a horse. It was definitely hard to watch him punch. Like, I cringed every time he, like, kneeled down. Like, when he looked under the car, I was like, ooh, his knees. <laughs> or when he was, like, lounging by the fire, I was like, that looks really uncomfortable. 
Doyle gave him a lot of money. He could have slept in a bed. He could have folded the seats down and slept in that truck. He didn't need to campfire it, unforgiven style. Yeah, that can't be comfortable when he sleeps in the chapel of the Virgin Mary on the wooden bench with the jacket draped over him. I was like, that looks really uncomfortable. I have a theory about this because he takes several naps. I think that Clint just laid down and was like, I'm going to take a nap, fellas. And they were like, what do we do? And someone was like, shoot it, just shoot it. And so they included Mike's naps throughout the film. That's why I called him Siesta Mike. (laughs) Siesta Mike. I mean, at least that was realistic that an old person might want to take a break now and then, you know, after a nice meal at the cantina. He's got he had some tamales at the cantina and then you want to take a little siesta. Perfectly reasonable. What's not reasonable is that every time someone looks at him, they are one scared of him, two attracted to him or three (laughs) impressed by him. Oh, yeah. When he suddenly became Dr. Doolittle and he literally (laughs) healed all the town's livestock by petting them. And saying, this one can be healed by sleeping at the foot of your bed. (laughs) That is my official diagnosis. There was opportunity there, right? This animal is so old, it's but you've got to give it a sense of purpose. A sense of purpose and an identity. Uh You've got to send it below the border to pick up this kid, even (laughs) though Doyle was perfectly capable of doing it. But they just, they never touched those nuances. No, because he was oblivious to it. It it didn't cross his mind. And God bless Clint Eastwood that he views himself as being so capable, so able, so... So Clint Eastwood? So Clint Eastwood. Like, never in his mind is he marginalized in this world. The world that he literally inhabits and the world that Mike inhabits. I mean, and if it was more convincing, then maybe there'd be some magic in people seeing that, realizing that, and respecting it. This is the movie-making magic in Cry Macho. It's not special effects. It's trying to convince us that Martha and Jessica Rabbit would be all up on. Oh, God, we didn't even talk about it. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that, that Mike was a virile man that conceivably Jessica Rabbit would be attracted to. Even if that were the case, why would she be like, let's do it, and then the next moment be like, you must leave now? Well, didn't he offend her honor, or didn't he, by implication, turn down her advances? When she doesn't get her way, then she acts out like like drug lords do. (laughs) Okay, I mean, just all around unrealistic performance there. Did you, for a minute, buy that she wanted to bed him? I I understood that that's what the movie was trying to suggest, but it was confounding and not at all convincing. Yeah. And I think that points to a problem with the script and not just the casting. Because mm. no matter what, the one constant, the one inevitable, was that Clint Eastwood was going to play the role of Siesta Mike. And anyone else could have been more age appropriate, where she's like, my husband Doyle was always too young for me, but you are just perfect. And they could have cast like an older lady or something. Mm. I mean, I'm sure that it was in the book, but it also seemed just telling of Clint Eastwood's process and how he envisions this movie to be. I can see him being like, well, you know, there's there's senoras in Mexico and uh, we should have a senora in this movie and she should have the hots for me. And they were like, all right, Clint, we're going to set it up. Do you want us to block the sex scene? He's like, nah, I have to bother with that. (laughs) 
because that would have that would have just taken it into complete comedic absurdity if Clint Eastwood had a sex scene. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that it would have been a dalliance that the movie couldn't afford, given its pacing or anything. Let's go through the plot of Crime Macho, shall we? Okay. So Doyle, whose course his name isn't Doyle, this is Dwight Yoakam from Sling Blade, who was Doyle and will always be Doyle. Actually a pretty good actor. Probably he's certainly the biggest name in this cast aside from Clint Eastwood. And the fact that he was so convincing as Doyle in Sling Blade and then kind of overacty here just suggests that the problem wasn't entirely in the casting. It was Clint Eastwood's 10%. It went awry a little bit. But Siesta Mike is a broken down former Bronco Buster. A rodeo star and horse breeder. And then he's summarily fired from his horse breeding job. For who knows what reason other than to establish some needed exposition. For no reason, really. And then he's almost immediately then hired, I guess being freed up from his horse trainer position. Maybe it was orchestrated so that he could go down south to pick Rufio up from Jessica Rabbit. And (laughs) if he... The first real false note in this film that Mike would be recruited for this task. But why was he fired in the first place? So that they could introduce a lot of exposition and Mike's sassiness. Okay. And then he sent down below, what did the capable enough Doyle say was the reason that he wasn't going to go down to get his kid? Because getting the kid was the MacGuffin. That was the ruse. I mean, the kid was always kind of the MacGuffin, but the ruse was that it, this was about the kid when, it, when really it was about having leverage with the kid's mom so that he could get his name on some property deeds. I mean, the rich guy is never going to put his neck out there. So was he rich? Was he the big boss man ranch owner that Rufio said he was? I mean, in a Texas kind of way. Because you'd think he would have anyone to send except 91-year-old Mike. And you can see he gets out of the truck and he closes the truck and does that little bow-legged walk with his shirt tucked in. Here and there. So he sends Mike down to Jessica Rabbit, who tries to seduce him. Mike, I think, rebuffs the advances because he didn't have his pills with him that day or something. She gets mad, sends him away after saying, take take the kid, take him back to Doyle. It's well, what do I care? And then she dispatches her henchmen after him. Right. Mm hmm. And they spend the rest of the movie evading them and what they called the federales and stealing cars. If that were the case, why did they keep stopping? It's like, well, we're on the run, kid. This looks like an interesting town. What do you say we stop and check it out? See what their tamales are like. To get some souvenirs, maybe, you know, a new T-shirt. To buy something that makes him look more low profile and stick out more at the same time. And to steal an entirely different car. Right. And that car subsequently broke down, which is why they end up staying at the Chapel of the Virgin Mary. And that's why he gets to meet Marta. How did it break down? He's like, I don't know. Cars break down. Pour some stuff under there, will you? And we'll shoot this thing. (sighs) And he's kneeling down. You know, that was one of the motions that he could convincingly do. Like, he knelt down pretty ably. And look, there were a couple of scenes, as badly as Rufio overacted, I felt like some of the more reflective scenes about life and things weren't terrible, and that's when Clint Eastwood had his both hands on the wheel. And then it was convincing, because he's got his presence, but pretty much any time they got out of the car, why did they keep stopping? Why did they keep getting out of the car? 
Yeah, why didn't they just beeline it for the border? But could it have been because he was conflicted about delivering, ultimately delivering Rafa, especially after knowing Doyle's motivation, which is essentially simply to use his son as leverage. But ultimately, he does deliver Rafa. I'm jumping ahead in the storyline here, which also seemed odd to me. And I guess he got to impart some fatherly type wisdom to the kid along the way. But really, he was like, all right, you go over there so I can hightail it back to Marta and do some more dancing. Right. For all his good impression role model thing for their incredibly long journey. He's like, you said it was supposed to be like three days. It's been two weeks. What are you doing? And I was like, what are you doing? Because he he went back into danger. That's where lanky hair guy, greasy hair dude is hanging out, waiting for him. Well, also... Also, the sheriff was all up on, too, until he healed his dog. Right. And then and then he was back on his side. And, and he right. even defended him or, or covered for him at one point. Right. When the henchmen are back and hot on his trail. Yep. He was in a place of danger. It, you know, initially it was the sheriff slash deputy. And then the henchmen catch up with him. But they, you know, it was unconscionable of Mike to deliver Raffo with Rafa not knowing how to ride a horse. And what better way to learn how to ride a horse than by breaking Broncos and earning a little cash on the side. But so he's better for doing that, but still delivering him to his lying dad that fired him and then going back to hang out with Marta for dancing and smooching. Was it okay for him to be like, life is tough, kid, and your dad is a liar, but he loves you, so here. And then he sees him across the curiously deserted border and Mike drives away. And so he like chastises the kid. He says, no, you know, you're not, not going to steal cars on my watch. Scoot over. I'm driving. And then they steal another car later on. And like, it just didn't seem like all of his surrogate father influence didn't matter in the end. Because he was just delivering. He was getting the job done and yeah. delivering him into. He got the job done and then, and then went back south. I mean, he's a. You know, my word is my bond, kind of a, you know, salt of the earth cowboy type. And he had a job to do and he saw it through to completion. But he grew a conscious along the way and he tried to do his best by the kid in the time that they had together. But then why include all the intrigue about Doyle lying to him and stuff? So that he could deliver the kid with the kid's eyes wide open. I don't know. I he mean... Uh, <laughs> I find myself in the very awkward position of defending this movie because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. So do you know that on Rotten Tomatoes, because you mentioned the rating before, this movie is listed as a Western. Okay, I can go with that. Drama and mystery and thriller. Wow, those are big words. I don't know. We're going to need somebody, whoever categorized this movie as such, to explain themselves. I think it's a drama I mean, there was punching and guns. Sure. Car chases. Remember when he outran the cops? Well, you know, his evasion wasn't completely successful, but him ridiculing and insulting the police and the kid bribing them, you know, they made a good, pretty good team in ultimately neutralizing that situation, wouldn't you say? Aside from the kids overacting in every single scene, maybe the most realistic scene. Not talking about the corruption, just just negotiating that scene in a way that didn't feel fake. Like, of course, he didn't outrun the cops in that station wagon. Of course they found him. And, of course, they're going to go through the thing and there's going to be, you know, some drama as to whether or not they're going to let the kid proceed on his way to his dad. And then he pays the cops off. And, of course, the old man is going to be grumbling and cursing the entire time. Maybe the most realistic scene. Like, exactly. A very in-line performance with the appearance of Mike that he would be going... 
assholes, jerks. <laughs> Clint Eastwood has become a meme in that respect. He is a legacy filmmaker. What Martin Scorsese said was maybe the last, he's probably the last vestige of the old studio system. And once Clint goes, there's no, they don't make movies like that anymore. They don't make directors like Clint anymore. So if Clint wants to make a movie and gosh darn it, if he wants to put on the hat and get back in the saddle, well, then we're going to let him. You know, who are we to say no to a Clint Eastwood Western? We are nobody to say that. And good on Clint for keeping on keeping on. I'm not going to pay for his next movie. <laughs> it's just, I would love to see Clint Eastwood with a little bit more self-awareness. How people might perceive him as a character and the breadth and width and depth of the story that he might want to try and tackle. Yeah, as one prominent reviewer suggested, Clint Eastwood comes with good intentions. He's just, he may be past his ability to pull off those good intentions. I mean, I have maintained that in Clint Eastwood's long history, there have been some real stinkers. And then he'll pull together this strange brew and churn out something that's worthy of best picture and best director. I mean, just based on, you know, probability, him doing that again in his 90s is highly unlikely. But I'm not sure that this movie is bad because Clint Eastwood is now bad because he's been had lots of bad movies over the years. You know, in some ways, Cry Macho is like a fantasy. Just like Hallmark movies are love fantasies, and you can watch them knowing that you're going to have a very safe, very satisfying experience if your expectations are set up correctly, Cry Macho is kind of like a fantasy old person western where, you know, nothing ever really is at stake. There really never is any imminent danger. There's no question that Mike's going to complete his mission. And if you just view it like that, that this is going to be a safe triumph of the elderly type (laughs) western... That's Am I, is this offensive? <laughs> triumph, <laughs> triumph of the elderly. Maybe it's a really nice, warm, comfortable experience. But I think for sophisticated moviegoers who are expecting a certain level of self-awareness of Clint Eastwood going in, they're going to be disappointed. Choose your own adventure. Do you throw the punch or do you fake a heart attack? <laughs> Talk about safe. Talk about in a bubble. <laughs> I saw this as like the Smithsonian Institute, the Eastwood exhibit, and you walk in and it's all clean and there's like screens in the, in the queue and there's like celebrities and they're talking about what a legend he is. And Scorsese talking about him being the last of the great studio, old studio system directors. And then you go into the next room and the docent is like, and, and here in this Pyrex container, we have the actual Clint Eastwood. And if you listen closely, he's making an actual cowboy movie right now, just like in olden times. And you could be in a movie. Do we have any volunteers? And Rufio puts up his hand and they stick him in there. And Clint Eastwood's like, all right, go ahead, kid. And he's like, he's not a chicken. He's a rooster. And his name is Macho. And Eastwood's like, cut, print. And then they, like they applaud. And they're like, do you want to pay $60 for the DVD in the gift shop of you and your Clint Eastwood movie? And he's like, yes, I do. And Warner is like, we'll buy it. Clint Eastwood Western, we'll buy it. Cry Macho is Rebecca Black's Friday of Clint Eastwood Westerns. And it seems like this kid got an opportunity or he won some kind of Make-A-Wish Foundation thing to be in a Clint Eastwood movie. Oh, Wesley. Wow. 
It's hard, wow. man, because you know my love, my enduring love for Clint Eastwood. In anyone else's hands, I would have said, this is total garbage. And thus, I'm actually going to give Cry Macho a nope, a nope. You burned me too many times, Clint. I love you and I trusted you. Brian didn't even finish in full transparency. He did not finish Cry Macho because he's just been betrayed too many times. And like I said, I'm not going to fund Clint Eastwood's next film. But should Warner Brothers continue? I mean, who knows? Maybe they're contractually obligated to. But, you know, I'd be curious to see what Clint Eastwood would come out with next. He needs a team. He needs, like, assisted filmmaking where someone props him up and says, "Uh, Clint, this script isn't going to work. We're going to change the script and we're going to change your meds and we're going to get this done right for you. You're going to be feeling a lot better. When did Brian leave? What was the final straw? The uh, showdown in the parking lot. Where he punched the dude. (laughs) He was like, I don't (sighs) buy it and took off. Yeah. And when he's like, good job, kid. I think it was right around that time. He was like, Brian was like, did you know that that parking lot scene where the kid turns the tables and says, it's not my dad that's abusing me. It's him. And then the guys go and attack. the. Exactly. He was like, did you know that that was shot for shot in the Avengers cartoon that Paloma was watching earlier today? The Avengers cartoon? Yes, Paloma's into the Avengers cartoon. Avengers cartoon on Disney Plus, okay. and uh, yeah, I think that was the final straw for Brian, where he checked out. Well, nice to know that Clint's keeping up with the modern stuff, with what the kids are watching these days. Ah, <sighs> so you anyway, um, we're at that point, and you've got to yeah. say it. No real reservations in giving Cry Macho a boring. But if a man wants to name his movie Cry Macho, I'm not going to stop him. Nope. And there you have it. That's a review on. Cry Macho, available in theaters and on HBO Max through October 17th. Let us know what you think. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Check out our review on Unforgiven, available at orwhatevermovies.com. Thank you, as always, for supporting Or Whatever Movies. Sorry, Clint. I'm sorry, all old people. I'm not saying you need to go quietly. I'm saying you should rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Don't let this be the last one. Unless it's going to be like this. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with ElectroCast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of ElectroCast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join ElectroCast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to ElectroCast.com and join our community today. ElectroCast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Electric acid.